Well, thank you, Ben, for sharing your heart with us and uh, super encouraged by your love for Christ and love for our church. Um, one of our singles leaders was sharing his testimony of his first Sunday at Cornerstone, and he came. I think people come because of the preaching, but they stay because of the people. And he said he loved the word, but he was so ministered to by a, a brother who stayed with him the whole Sunday um, during the snack time, even afterwards, just kind of stuck next to him and ministered and encouraged him. And he, he shared with us, it was, it was Ben Liao. So thank you for continuing that ministry on, not just through uh, the pulpit, but really through people's lives, uh, impacting souls uh, for the cause of Christ. Thank you, brother. Thank you, Bob, for sharing with us as well about uh, one-year anniversary and how all that we do uh, now we're praying that it would uh, be a foundation for Christ, foundation for His church, and foundation upon which we can launch the gospel here in our community and throughout the world. And to that end, you will note that there are 10 chairs mis- empty this morning, and these 10 empty chairs, I am happy that they're empty. Uh, usually when they're empty, I'm sad because they're still sleeping, and, <laughs> or they're parking their cars right now. But these 10 chairs are empty because they're serving Christ in the Czech Republic. Uh, English camp has started. 10 men and women from Cornerstone, along with the Denny's and the Smiths, are faithfully uh, presenting our precious, the precious gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of free grace, to 110 atheists in the Czech Republic. And we are trusting, we're believing, that as pastors uh, Peter and Marcus and Joe as well, as they herald the gospel, and they see the gospel through our team members and the team members from Christ Our Hope that just like it is powerful to us, Christ is clearly portrayed as crucified and it will convict hearts as it has done for us. It will do the same and it will melt hearts and call them to Christ over in that land. And we have the double privilege of the Smith family joining us on August 2nd. Pastor Peter and his family, Sonia and the four kids. Uh, I think I know their names, but I don't want to risk it right now. But four kids will be joining us for worship, and Pastor Peter will be joining, and they'll be bringing along two of their uh, members of their church that were recently converted to Christ uh, this past year, uh, Daniel and Eva. Their last names are really long. So they'll be, <laughs> I mean really long. They'll be joining us and uh, sharing their testimonies. So mark on your calendar, calendars August 2nd, and uh, we can really see um, how the gospel is bearing fruit all over the world. So get to our study this morning, and I'll share with you a conversation that I had with my mom uh, two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, Monday, I remember it vividly. I was with, my, with some church members. We're having a meal, having fellowship and a meeting, and I get a phone call, and it's my mom. I pick up, and she's yelling over the phone and saying, it's an emergency, like disaster. Something awful has happened. I need you to come to my house right now because something awful's happened. I said, what happened, Mom? What's going on? She said, my VCR is not working. <laughs> my VCR is broken. I can't watch my Korean videos. And I go, Mom, I understand, but, <laughs> but I'm a pastor, and I'm with church members, and I'm in the middle of ministry. And she says, no, it's an emergency. You need to come right now. Because i got a spare VCR in the other room. You need to connect that into my TV. I said, Mom, you know, tomorrow morning, first thing in the morning, I'll come and I'll switch the VCR. And she said, 
I can't live without my Korean videos. She literally said, I cannot live. She can't live. And I said, Mom, it's just one night. You'll, you'll live. You, you'll, you'll be okay. <laughs> you know, go read a book, you know. <laughs> go for a walk. And so she was quite upset. I said, I'm, I'm the, I, I just can't. So, um, and that was our conversation. So I, I met her up uh, two days ago. And we're having a breakfast. And I said, Mom, you're alive. <laughs> I told you, please, your son, you're okay. And she was saying, well, she was so, like, amped up. She went to her neighbor's house and, like, made them come and switch the VCR. <laughs> so that Korean job doesn't work on me where she can't live. But people that don't know her, they really think, like, something happens. They, they actually go, mine. that worked for her? <laughs> so... Oswald, Oswald, it ends well, I guess. And then we're talking, and she was telling me, James, I have a question for you. And I go, oh, no, another Korean video uh, question. And she says, James, like, I'm going to this church, a small church, and, and they're teaching me about tithing. And it's really a burdensome thing for me. I feel guilty all the time because I fall short of tithing. What do you think? What does the Bible say? And I have told her this before many times. Mom, tithe is an Old Testament tax of the nation of Israel. A tithe was collected twice a year and every third year as, as well. It was a flat tax for all, all citizens of Israel. Uh, every, every year they would collect 23%. And so if you're not a member of the Jewish nation, you're not required to pay this flat tax. For New Testament, there is no percentage giving. There is no tithe. We're not under the law. We're in Christ. Don't go back to the law. Mom, you are free in Christ. So the Bible teaches us that whatsoever you do by faith is pleasing to the Lord. Hebrews 11.6 and Romans 14:23, whatever you do apart from faith is sin. So, mom, give joyfully, give you know, with a, a, a voluntarily, give with a free will, and whatever you give, whether it's a penny or 0.1 percent or 50 percent, if you do it with faith, God is pleased. And she was so encouraged and, and unburdened by that. And my thought was, you know, here's here's a here's my mom, a widow. And she's struggling with Korean videos. You know, that's her faith. I believe she's a Christian, but very young Christian. So young, she can't live without Korean videos. And that's her faith. And yet she goes to church and she's burdened with Old Testament commands, burdened with law, burdened with obligations and duty, where she feels pressed to do something against her faith, against the amount of her faith, out of, out of, out of human loyalties and human obligations. And so what I... What's trying to do with her is what we're trying to do uh, these Sundays, the past few weeks, to have a God-centered view about our lives and in the area that is often neglected by Christians. We strive to have a God-centered perspective for our parenting, for our relationships, for our careers, for our prayer life, for our word life, for everything. And in this area of money, we... Uh, we kind of neglect having a God-centered perspective on this area of finances. And that's a challenge for all of us. That's what we want to do. We want to have a God-centered perspective in all of our lives, including finances. For the singles of the past several months, we've been studying 1 Peter 3, 5 through 6, how uh, women ought not to focus their adornment, external adornment, wearing of gold, putting on of clothing, all that makeup and, 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 and accessories, but the adornment be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. 
So a Christian's heart is that we want to be beautiful in the sight of God, much more than before the sight of man. For guys, uh, Psalm 147, 10-11 is helpful, talking about his delight is not in the strength of the horse or in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. So for guys, our boast, our confidence, our, what we esteem is not our physical strength or not our possessions, but what God esteems, to have a God-centered perspective about ourselves and our possessions. And same thing with the area of money. Uh, this is where 2 Corinthians 9 is so helpful. And the world says uh, we ought to esteem those who make a lot of money. We ought to esteem those who, is wise, who are wise with money, who have made a lot. They have this keen knowledge, insight on how to invest, how to hoard, how to get the best deals and stretch their dollar. Uh, the world esteems and heaps accolades on such people. But the question that as Christians we must grapple with is, who does God esteem? What kind of person does God delight in? What is God's perspective? And that is the first and foremost a question that should be on our hearts. And that is the most important thing for us. Not what the world thinks. Not what my family or not what I think. But what does God think? And here in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, we find a praise that gives us a glimpse of God's perspective in this area of finances. The last phrase. It says, God loves a cheerful giver. God doesn't love, and I read it correctly, it doesn't say God loves those who give. God loves the one who gives with joy. God absolutely loves the believer who gives with joy. It is hard to imagine a more precious promise than to be the personal object of God's love. All the world's acclaim, honor, and rewards given to all philanthropists put together does not come close to the privilege of being loved by God Himself. Yet that is what God declares here in this verse. God loves the world in a general sense. He has a deeper, wonderful love for His own people, and He has a special love to that one who gives cheerfully. That verse 7 uh, gives us characteristics, the qualities, the marks of a cheerful giver. Tells us uh, this, this person, this giving comes from the inside, from the heart, rather than external coercion. We'll learn later on that their giving is an expression of their uh, joy in the gospel. Just like what Bob shared, they're so uh, thankful they're so enriched by the cross of Christ. They're so filled with gratitude and humility and joy that they express it in their giving. It's not outward duty. It's not obligation. It's not burdensome. No, it's out of a cheerful heart from the inside that results in giving. It is uh, not forced, nor is it casual. It's not careless. It's not a mere afterthought. 
the word here is he's made up his mind. He has purposed it in his heart. There is an intentionality behind this giving. It's not careless giving. It's not whatever's in my pocket. It's not whatever's left over. It's not loose change. There is a predetermination. It's a purpose in one's heart that is planned and systematic, and it's not given grudgingly. Right? Like someone giving blood. You know, you're counting every drop, and in that way, you're giving to the Lord. You're not giving with sorrow or grief or pain. It's not like, at least, I don't know, I don't know if it's for you guys, but I give bittersweet when paying taxes, right? I want to support my government. I hope I am. I want to be a patriot, patriot but I don't want to pay for someone else's uh, you know, uh, negligence. I don't want to bail out some company and, and they overspend. Whole another sermon here. But <laughs> when I think about that, Man, my, my joy in supporting my government decreases. That is not how we are to give to the Lord. We are to give with freeness, as a privilege, with pleasure, a cheerful giver. And it's not just in the Old Testament. Uh, and New Testament, it's in the New Old Testament as well. Deuteronomy 15, uh, 10 and 11 says, You shall give freely. And your heart shall not be grudging when you give to Him. Deuteronomy 16.10 You shall rejoice before the Lord as you give. Exodus 35.5 Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. So this tells us God's more interested in our, the manner of giving, our heart condition and in, 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 in as we give, how we give, why we give, more than the amount itself. Really, God's concern is not about the amount. Really about the heart. Right? It's really about the heart. So just uh, parallel that with um, you know, a gift that maybe your spouse gives to you. Right? Maybe on Valentine's Day or on your birthday or on your anniversary, they give to you out of a grudging heart. Man, I've got to give you this box of chocolates. Right? I picked up these flowers at Shell Gas Station on my way home because i got to give you something. I can't come home empty-handed. Right? I bought these, you know, whatever. And so it doesn't matter what it is. That's the heart. I mean, you don't want it. And we're sinners. Right? We're unholy. How much more God, how much more God is concerned about our hearts rather than the amount? Right? Why does God love a cheerful giver? Um, let me just quickly uh, highlight to you three reasons why I believe God loves a cheerful giver. Because it, it is a means to our benefit. He has, you know, God seeks our good. God's not there. I mean, I promise you, and you, we know this through the gospel, God wants our best. He's not there taking and taking and nickel and diming us. He's not there to spoil our lives. He's not there to ruin our ambitions, our aspirations, our hopes and dreams. He's not there as a stumbling block to our happiness. No, He gives us these instructions as a means for our joy. Because God understands that way He established the spiritual world is totally counterintuitive to the uh, the natural world. The spiritual world is paradoxical. 
The Christian life is, is, is opposite. It's counterintuitive. It is paradoxical. I mean, the, the Sermon on the Mount, the first sermon that Christ gave after the inauguration of His ministry, He began with paradoxes. He said, blessed, if you're poor in spirit, you, you're, you're blessed by God. You're not cursed, you're blessed by God for yours is the kingdom of heaven. If you are mourning now, you are blessed for you'll be comforted. If you are meek, if you are powerless, you are blessed because you will inherit the earth. If you are hungering and thirst for righteousness. So if you are in sin, you are not obeying God. Right, You are filled with guilt, shame, and your remorse over your depravity, then you are blessed, for you shall be filled. You shall be satisfied. I mean, he begins with paradoxes. That's the Christian life. It's the opposite. Uh, that's why the Puritan prayer, value and vision, is so precious for us. I, I pray this prayer often, because it reminds me that my instincts are wrong when I when I. When I'm in the Christian world, my instincts are right in the, secu- in the natural world. But in the Christian world, it's the exact opposite. Uh, the prayer goes, let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up. That to be low is to be high. That the broken heart is the healed heart. The contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. The repenting soul is the victorious soul. To have nothing is to possess all. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive. And the valley is the place of clearest vision. The height is the place of the greatest temptation. David worked his whole life to build his kingdom and on the roof of his kingdom, he saw Bathsheba. He was tempted, and he, he fell. Right. The height of our achievements is the place of greatest vulnerability. It's the place of worst vision. It's where we are most prone to be deceived and go astray. When we are at the valley, when we're in the dumps, when we're struggling, when we are at the end of ourselves, that's the place with the clearest vision to God, to Christ, to His gospel, to His grace and mercy. So God calls us to give cheerfully because giving is a means to our contentment. Right? And then the world says, uh, the more you have, the more happy you will be. But we, if, we, if you've lived long enough, you realize the more you have, you're not happier, you want more. Your appetite just grows, right? It, it's, it's, that's not how it works in the world. You're, you're never happy enough. You're never satisfied. You never have enough. You always feel like, if I made a little more money, if I had a little more possessions, if I had a little more buffer room at the end of every month, then I'll be happy, then I'll be content. Once I reach this point, I won't have worries. But the reality is our hearts are so twisted, that contentment, that joy... That peace, that rest is always elusive, where it drives us insane. And, and you know, there's, there's countless stories of men who are wealthy who, 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 uh, who, who personify that in their insanity and how they live their lives. Uh, God calls us to be cheerful givers because it is an antidote to our selfishness. Uh, it is the cure. The contentment is not gained by going into a cave and, I don't know, meditating. And it's not gained by reading a lot of books. It's not gained, 
you know, this joy, this peace, uh, this contentment is not gained by some kind of uh, going to a conference and having special people pray for you. This uh, spiritual gift is gained by practice of this spiritual uh, discipline of cheerful giving. It's an antidote to our pride, to our selfishness, to our self-centeredness, to our indulgent cravings of our hearts where we see creation not as a means to glorify God, but instead because of our idolatry self, we see creation as a means for our gratification. So God gives us this command for our joy, for our delight, for our satisfaction. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, he who lives for himself must be wretched. The one, the, the, the one who can only rejoice in what he himself enjoys has but narrow channels for his happiness. But he who delights to make others blessed, who delights to glorify God, who can deny his own flesh and his own wishes, if he may but honor his master and bless the world, he it is who is the happy man. And as God delights in the happiness, which is the result, so he delights in the cheerful giving, which is the cause. Cheerful giving is the cause. Second reason God loves a cheerful giver, because that's when we are more like God. That's when we are more like God. God himself is a cheerful giver. Be holy because God is holy. Because God is holy, when we grow in holiness, He rejoices. And because God is a cheerful giver, when we give joyfully, voluntarily, with free will, not out of obligation or duty, or or to earn favor before God or man, God delights in it. Because God, again, with a cheerful giver, what did He give? He, He gave us salvation. He gave us the forgiveness of our sins. He gave us His only begotten Son. These things were done while we were all yet sinners. He is the most cheerful giver in the universe. He didn't begrudgingly forgive us. He didn't like, oh man. Like, right? He didn't like with, with, with bitterness and resentment and out of just obligation to Jesus and the Holy Spirit, you know, okay, I promise so I'm going to do this. That is not in the manner in which He forgave us of our sins. He joyfully responded to our cries of repentance. And liberally, I mean, His generosity is just, knows no ends. You know, you just consider, now I'm in this whole double imputation, like, like fixation. I, I'm fixated with this, this doctrine. That not only are our sins forgiven, but all the righteousness of Christ is imputed to my account. I mean, what kind of generosity is that? That not only am I sinless in the sight of God, in the sight of God, I have all the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Christ. So when God sees me, man, I never, right? I never like messed up. I never... You know, all those sins I committed against my wife, it's gone. Praise God, right? All those sins I committed against you, you remember, but God doesn't remember, right? You know, all those sins I committed against my parents, God doesn't remember. All He sees is perfect righteousness. I mean, that's 
That's crazy generosity. So for so long in my Christian life, I focused on just forgiveness of sins, and I thought, wow, God was generous. Right? But to consider the imputation of Christ's righteousness, that is, that is infinite generosity with which, with joy, He has given to me and all followers of Christ. The third reason God loves cheerful givers is because our joy in giving brings glory to God. It, it, it glorifies God. Right? It, it exalts God. It highlights, it esteems God before the world. So the degree in which we, we pay and give and suffer and sacrifice for Christ, to that degree, He's made beautiful in the, in the world. Right? So, cheesy illustration, right? Nothing else. So, you know, the, I love the Lakers, right? So, I, I mean, I, I don't love the Lakers, but I love the Lakers. It's not a woeful decision. It's like, it's like predestined. I just, <laughs> it's just, I can't help myself, right? So, you know, rationally, they're not a big deal. They're a kid, entertainment, sports, it's make-believe, right? But, in my heart, man, they... But I don't so love the Lakers where I would go to Los Angeles in the middle of the day and stand in 90 degree weather to cheer them on, to see them for like five minutes on a bus. Right? My love for the Lakers ends right there. Right? <laughs> I'll, re- I'll watch the highlights at home. I don't want to suffer for them. Right? I don't want to go and risk my life you know, in L.A. <laughs> I'm a dad. I have four kids. I don't want to risk my life with the Lakers. Be sad. I'm a fan died. You know, the Lakers, a father of four, like pastor of Cornerstone. Like what? Like uh, I don't want that on my, you know, uh, obituary. Um, but, but for those fans, to, to their degree of commitment, how they suffer and sacrifice, even pay tickets, pay pay money to go see them, that degree, it it esteems, extols, it it, it raises the value of this. You know, the best franchise, the sports franchise in the whole world before, before, for the world, right? Well, likewise, for Christ and His church. If we pay little, if we give little, if we sacrifice little for our church here at Cornerstone, and we're Christians, and we're members of this church, then you know, God's glory will not be diminished by our failings, by our weaknesses. God's glory is not robbed by us. Uh, he, you know, his glory is, is settled and established and nothing we do, he will use that. He will use our sins or our failings to glorify himself right, uh, through his sovereignty. But in a practical sense, the beauty of Christ's bride, the beauty of the gospel is diminished uh, in the sight of the world. And they'll say, look how little they love Christ. Look how little they love their church. This is where their profession of the gospel ends. And this is how much they value what they so loudly pro- profess, what they loudly so vociferously proclaim when rubber meets the road, this is where their heart is at. But for God, when we make much of Him, when we make much of Him, He loves it. He loves that person because His glory is at stake in the world. And therefore, God promises. God makes promises to the cheerful giver. He promises guaranteed return. Right? Guaranteed return. Verse 6, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap 
bountifully. This, uh, this uh, truth is repeated throughout Scripture. Proverbs 11.25 Whoever brings blessings will be enriched. One who waters will himself be watered. Galatians 6.9 Let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we do not give up. Hebrews 6.10 For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you show for His sake in serving the saints as you still do. Money given to God support His work, support His people, help the poor. Is money bestowed in a very unique way where it will be returned again in some way with an abundant increase. It will not be lost. You are not giving to Bernie Madoff. Right? You're not giving to a Ponzi scheme. You're not giving it away where it will be lost. Or there's risk inherent in what you're uh, investing in. The seed may be buried long. It may lie in the ground with no indication of a return or of increase. But God promises in due time it shall spring up and produce an ample increase to the sower. To the person that sowed. And it's proportional. If you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, reap bountifully. And we're not talking... We understand, right? Give God a dollar, he'll give you a hundred. Right? I mean, that's... I mean, so if you want $100, just keep your money. That's crazy. Right? Like, we're not, this is not like a corporate meeting. This is not like a business. He's talking about, like, things that money can't buy. That things that money has no control or power over. I mean, things like contentment. Things like, right, things like joy in one's heart. Joy in relationships. Right? Things like peace with God. I mean, just this, this, this spiritual maturity, this uh, freedom from enslavement to one's selfishness. Man, I, I'd pay money, I'd pay good money to be set free from my selfishness. Right? My, my, my enemy towards sanctification, my, my adversary in my walk with Christ, the adversary that hurts my relationship, my wife, my children, my, my fellow leaders in the church, with all of you, my selfishness gets in the way with everything, and if it was just money that would set me free from that, wow, right? I'd pay good money to be set free from that, and that's what God promises. Not only that, God is uh, able and will grant grace. Verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having everything, having all sufficiency in all things, at all times you may abound in every good work. So to a cheerful giver is God gives His Son and God gives grace. God gives sufficient grace. God gives all that we need for life and godliness to those who cheerfully give to the Lord. And He will, verse, verse 11, enrich you in every way for all your generosity. The promise that God makes is when you're generous, it will not be contained to that one area. In every area of your life, there will be richness. God will enrich you. Um, Proverbs 11.24 says, One gives freely and grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. A paraphrase of this verse reads this, The world of the generous gets larger and larger, and the world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller. 
And I have a lengthy quote from Mark Buchanan's book, The Rest of God. He said, this is more than a principle of financial stewardship. It is a basic truth of life. Generous people generate things. And consequently, generous people, their lives are more varied. Lives are surprising, colorful, fruitful. They're richer in every way. More abounds with them. They have a greater thirst and a deeper capacity to take it all in. Not so the stingy. Stinginess is parasitic. It chews life up, spits out the bones. The stingy end up losing what they so desperately try to hold. As Jesus warned, those who store up treasure only on earth discovered that it's too late. Discovered this too late. That such storage is merely composting. So, a generous person. He's enriched in his relationships. If he's generous, it's not contained in just to God. He's generous towards his wife. Or the wife is generous towards her husband. Not just in financially, but in every way. Right? Relationally, in forgiveness, in love, in kindness, in esteem with words, in respect, in honor, in consideration, right? In, in terms of understanding. That generosity flows over to children, where the parents are generous to their children, not just buying them toys, but generous in their lavishing of praise and understanding and love and kindness. And they're generous towards their friends. Not just buy them meals, but they're generous with their time, with their hearts, with their love, with their affection. They're generous with their neighbors. So a generous person has a rich life. But a person who is stingy with money, which is the least of all these things, if he's stingy with money, he's stingy towards his spouse. In terms of forgiveness, understanding, kindness, praise, respect, honor, stingy towards the children, stingy towards parents, relatives, friends, neighbors. And so the stingy person, his life is uh, sad. Right? It's all alone. Right? He's isolated. She's isolated. She has, he or she has no friends. No one calls them. Right? Because that person is so wrapped up in their self-centeredness that though financially they're rich, in every other way, they're in poverty. Right? They're, they're bankrupt. Right? But the generous person, right? in every other way, their life is rich. And their heart with God, and their family, with their spouse, with their children, like with their friends, right? with, with neighbors, with the community, with the world. God promises. Well, four results of cheerful giving. Four results, and we'll close with this. Uh, verse 15, more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving. The, it causes people to be thankful to God. Right? Increases thanksgiving. Right? It causes uh, leaders in the church to be filled with thanks. When we give cheerfully. Secondly, it brings glory to God. It brings glory to God. Look at verse 13. By their approval of the service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. 
Now look at this verse. They will glorify God for this two reasons. And it's a perfect marriage. Because of your submission that flows, not duty, not burden, not obligation, not out of fear of man or pleasing man. Your submission that flows from the gospel of God and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. Here's this perfect marriage. Gospel motivation and gospel action. They're motivated by the gospel to do gospel giving, gospel application, gospel action. One without the other is where most people live. They either have gospel motive without action. They say, I believe in the gospel. I'm free, so I don't have to obey. God loves me unconditionally, so I can just rest, and I don't have to obey God. I don't have to follow through. I'm free to live for myself. But um, the book of James talks about that kind of faith. If you say you have such a faith that it produces no deeds, that is not true faith. It is, there's a kind of faith, there's a term that describes that kind of faith. It is a dead faith. It is a non-living faith. It is non-active. It is a dead faith. And that's a wrong kind of gospel motivation. The other is wrong motive with gospel action. So they are faithful in the application. They are obeying the Bible. They are giving generously. But they are motivated by not the gospel. It's not submission flowing from the gospel of Christ. It is submission flowing out of pride, out of ego, out of desire to manipulate, desire to influence, out of competitiveness, out of uh, legalism or self-righteousness or out of fear of man, some other insidious motive is compelling this person to give generously. But Matthew 5-7, through 7, Christ used the Pharisees as the archetype of this kind of religious person. They do the right thing for the wrong reason. And... Uh, you know, Matthew seven twenty one. he will say to those in the last day, I never knew you. Depart from me. And they will say, Jesus, Lord, Master, I gave so much. I, I did so many things. I served in so many ways. I led in so many capacities. And Jesus will say, well, well you, never, you didn't do it for me though. You know, I wasn't your motivation. You weren't doing our love for me. Like I, we never had this relationship. You're doing it for yourself all along. You know, away from me. You're workers of iniquity. You were doing the right thing for the wrong reasons, so your works were like tainted with sin. So how these both things must be married together for it to be honoring to Christ. And Paul says the Corinthians and the Macedonians, it was a beautiful marriage. Because their submission was flowing from the gospel, but it resulted in generosity. It wasn't gospel, so I don't have to give. I don't have to obey. I don't have to do anything. No, it was gospel, resulted in generosity. Both are there, perfect marriage. And that's the result of cheerful giving and results in increase in fellowship. 
Verse 14, they long for you, pray for you, because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Right? It'll increase unity, increase the dynamic of fellowship within the church. And close with this. It's this um, praising God, glorifying God, thanking God sandwich. It starts with thanking God, glorifying God, and ends with thanking God and glorifying God. Verse 15, thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. Because all of this is a result of the gift of Christ. All of this is a result, is a fruit of Jesus. Fruit of the cross. So we don't disconnect money with the gospel. Because it's submission flowing from the gospel that results in generosity. We connect money with the gospel. So when we see giving, we don't gloat or boast in ourselves. We don't salivate over a building or location. We, we look at that amount and it causes us to exalt Christ and thank God for the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. Where God gives, God, God receives all the glory. All the glory. Um, we are, uh, we look back on this first year of LTF and uh, our only regret is not starting this year one of our church life. We are so thankful for what God has done in our midst, uh, in our study, in our prayers, and how so many of you have responded uh, with sacrificial giving, generous giving, and with joyful giving. Next Sunday, we're going to present to you uh, our, our numbers, present to you percentages, and so that we can glorify God together and, and thank God together over God's work of grace in our midst. As for the elders and pastors, as we consider in this like insane economy, right, the new normal, right, I mean just uh, L-shaped economy that's ahead of us, where fear is rampant, right? fear is everywhere, but Christians are being marked by not living out of fear or anxiety or worry, but Christians are striving to live by faith, right? you know, to, to, to live in the real world by faith. The leaders of the church, pastors and elders, we are, we are amazed, we are blown away, we are so thankful to God because as we see your generosity for us, our first response is, this is evidence of God's grace working in our midst. Right? This is not human coercion. It's not manipulation. It's not heavy-handed persuasion. It is the grace of God working in our hearts where out of submission to the gospel, it is producing generous hearts. We are thankful because it is a tangible uh, evidence of your heart and love and commitment to Christ Church at Cornerstone. Uh, we all, you know, I think all of us, your members, you have touchy-feely love for this church. Right? I hope you do, right? You know, you, like more than the Lakers, I do, right? I have touchy-feely love for, for Cornerstone, and, and you do as well. But that's like 
like immature love, right? That's like first few months of dating. Right? Hopefully, if you are married, you have moved beyond that where there is tangible commitment of your, of your love. And we're thankful because the mature love of the members of Cornerstone has progressed beyond just emotional sentiment. But it's at the stage of genuine love, practiced and lived out by sacrificial giving. Um, we are thankful and blown away because to some degree it is a measure of your faith in the leadership of this church. Of course we're not worthy. Of course we're not looking at ourselves. But um, it gives us um, I don't know, courage. It gives us uh, some semblance of uh, confidence in Christ to have the church support and uh, affirm us in this very practical way. It's not just word and speech, but it's deed and in truth. So the elders and pastors and the leaders of our church are, are encouraged. And finally, uh, ultimately, we are um, thankful for your generosity because it is a reflection of your love for the gospel. Because that's the big vision of, of, of this, is we want to advance the gospel here in our community, in our country, and throughout the world. And so our love for the gospel, our affection, our holy affection because of the gospel uh, is the reason for our giving. And the gift demonstrates how God's grace, God's gospel has worked in your hearts. And so we are humbled and tremendously thankful to God. God has greatly blessed us and uh, we believe God will continue to bless us uh, through His Son as we are trusting in Him. Let's pray. After I pray, I'm going to give you guys just a few minutes just to uh, consider these truths and and pray, and then we'll have uh, the ushers come to collect the commitment cards um, as we commit our ways to the Lord. Let us pray that God will bless our efforts, that it will be indeed a spiritual work that He is doing in our midst. God, we, uh, uh, we thank You that You are a cheerful giver to us. We, Lord, we didn't appreciate, we still don't fully appreciate the amazing love, the manner of love you have given to us in Christ. With our dull hearts, with our short-sightedness, and uh, our ears that are, are, that are deaf, we do not truly uh, can measure the, the great and awesome gift that you have given to us once for all in your Son, Jesus Christ. But Lord, as we apply our faith in the gospel, we see a glimpse. And as we apply faith, we, we taste but little of, of how sweet this living bread is and how beautiful your son is. And we uh, bless your name. We give you praise from the depths of our hearts. We extol and acclaim, our God has been merciful to us. You have been merciful, merciful, merciful to us. And so you are Lord and King. Uh, we are voluntary slaves uh, to you because of your kindness toward us. So we pray that that gospel fruit would be produced in our lives. It will not just in our hearts, but it would be translated to the manner we live and what we live for and how we, 
how we uh, live our lives in this world. And may the world see, as we make much of you in our church, may the world see um, your beauty in us and through us. We thank you, Lord, for uh, blessing us with the gospel. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.